This is 169 Projects. I'm Michael Tutton. I'm insatiably curious and excited about finding great work done in digital signage and visual communications. This podcast is designed to dig into some of those projects, find out what they're all about and how they came together. That might be a big experiential job, a massive video wall, projection mapping, or a cool one-to-one interactive project. Each episode will get into the thinking behind the project and how it came together by talking to the people responsible. Just like the Mothership Podcast 16.9, this one's available online, or you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or using your favorite podcast listening app. I'm grateful and excited to announce that the podcast now has a sponsor thanks to Mahler Digital Signage. That's right, 16.9 Projects is sponsored by Mahler Digital Signage. Put your digital signage network in expert hands. AT&T's West Coast flagship retail space at 1 Powell Street in San Francisco was built in 1921. The lobby of the historical building hosts coded art being generated live on a 48-foot-long curved LED. Jeff Dowd is executive creative director at Max Media and a three-time Emmy winner with a background in broadcast and graphics. He spoke with me about putting new technology into very old historically registered buildings, getting along with the locals, and how instead of saying don't mess with the brand, AT&T said, show us what you think could happen. I spoke with Jeff via Skype. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. I think we'll start with uh, you telling us uh, what the project is and what it looks like when you stand in the room. Well, the One Powell store is in a fantastic location. It's maybe one of the most prominent retail spaces in the nation. It's right at the trolley turntable on One Powell Street in San Francisco. It's a huge building. It's historical, built in, I think, 1921, originally as the Bank of Italy. So it's very ornate on the inside. And uh, it has a huge atrium that faces the trolley square. So there's who knows how many thousands of people that are getting on the trolley every day can look through the windows and see what's happening inside, which is a pretty big attraction. So when you walk in the door, the front door, the ceiling goes all the way up to the top of the second floor, and it's a huge, ornate ceiling. And there's a gigantic atrium there that we chose to uh, place digital in that space. And it is spectacular. The uh, We proposed a number of different configurations for what happens in there, and it was finally settled that we would use the curved mezzanine as the backboard for a curved digital screen setup that was provided by nanolumens, which is bendable. And the thing about it is it's, it's like LEDs with a brilliant color shining right in your face. It's so brilliant. You can't uh, believe it. It's uh, almost uh, overpowering when you look at it. Now, this is a historical building. So were there issues around trying to put such modern technology into such a historical building? There sure were. And it really slowed the project down. The original timeline was to open in two months and it ended up being four, uh, mostly because of that. Uh, Callison and Seattle is the architects of the space and they hired an architectural historical restoration expert, a couple of them actually. And we were not allowed to touch the walls because the walls are faux painted in marble. And the floor was kind of dug up a little bit. It's a marble floor and very ornate. And we were asked to completely restore that floor to its original condition, which took a long time. And then, uh, yeah, we were restricted from hanging things from the ceiling, except in a couple of little spots. And I understand they went through and cleaned the ceiling with Q-tips and water. And this is like, it must be a half an acre of a ceiling up there. I don't know. I wasn't there when that happened, but really, really spectacular space now. and super huge. It's a real honor when they're letting you uh, put something as modern as what you've put into place in a space like that. Yeah, and San Francisco is a unique case because the... uh, The strategy behind the build-out was really to do it at the scale and expectation of what Silicon Valley would want to see. 
The problem is that Silicon Valley is responsible for a lot of people moving into the San Francisco area and forcing out people that have lived there for 30 and 40 years, and the rents are now sky high in the area. So there's not a lot of uh, not a lot of sympathy for technology companies moving into a space like that. So our strategy for the content was to really embrace the local community. We have a lot of uh, we sent a camera crew out there, people on our staff to photograph places in San Francisco that only the locals would know about, not the landmarks like the Golden Gate or the Pyramid Building and so forth. But we went and got the back alleys and the local parks and places like that where we could really embrace the local arts and culture and really make a big deal out of that and say, we're here to be your friend, not a megalith company that's here to overpower you and force more people up to Oakland. So we'll get to the content because it, it's unique in the way the content is generated, but maybe if you could take us back to the idea generation and uh, the presentations of various ideas, what what was the client's goal and aim with what was being put in place and, and what did you guys kind of put forward and, and how did that process work out? Well, we do tons and tons of digital content for AT&T. I think last year we produced 4,500 different units of content for the 2,200 company-owned retail stores for 120 or so stores of the future and the flagship store in Chicago, which is all custom content, and now the uh, the flagship store in San Francisco, which is also all custom content. So we're pretty well versed in in what the brand looks like and how it performs visually. And so we came in with four concepts that were right on target as far as the brand goes and pretty spectacular. And they really encouraged us. They're like, don't get us wrong. This is great work as it always is, but we want to be so far outside the box with this. We want this to be spectacular. We want something like you've never done before. And I said, well, what are the limitations with our brand here? Because we've got a, you know, a pretty hemmed in and pretty well-honed machine when it comes to identifying the brand vocabulary. And they're like, just show us what you think could happen, and we'll say yes. And so I immediately thought of my friend Joshua Davis, who's a on the spot, really, I thought of this, is that he's a very accomplished coder and artist and illustrator. And I, I pulled him up on Google. And I said, listen, this is a very interesting way to think about this, is that Joshua generates art with code, and it goes directly to the screen. There's no animation process. There's no rendering. It's able to change 24 hours a day. There's a, a handle called the random seed. And if you set random seed at zero, not much changes over time, but if you set it at 100, it's going to cache elements, PNG files, and images from a library and bring them to the screen in a constantly evolving way, which is fascinating. And that's, they love the idea that art and technology can be combined like that. And they really thought that was a great vocabulary for AT&T. So they immediately pushed me to go do that. And I thought, well, how am I going to get this done? So the next morning we met to talk about it internally. I said, there's only one way to get this done. I'm just going to call Josh right now. So... I called him up and he says, hello. I said, I'm looking for Joshua Davis. This is he. I said, well, I've got a project for you. He said, tell me more. And that was the beginning of a really great relationship. We've been working with uh, Josh since then. We finally delivered that content in September last year. And since then, we've updated the content a number of times. And, you know, I can get Josh on FaceTime anytime I want, really. He'll always pick up the phone. He's doing stuff for this. He just finished up a bunch of stuff for the Super Bowl. But that collaboration was really worthwhile for us. Uh, we were able to guide him into the three basic stories that we wanted to tell on that panorama, which are entertainment, which is a big one since the acquisition of DirecTV, 
uh, connected life, which is the idea that everything you do is enabled by mobility and you're always connected no matter where you are. And the third chapter is really about arts and culture and really embracing the wild and crazy psychedelic era, the, the wonders of Chinatown and all the rest of it that really brings all this bright visual vocabulary to it. And that was super fun. So explain to us how the content works and what we actually see with, with the content in terms of uh, what's being generated. Okay. So in the code base, there are a number of parameters that are blocks of code that describe certain things like the arts and culture section generally moves like imagine a group of people doing Tai Chi in the park. There's a certain kind of action to that. And that's described in, in lines of code and helps to drive what's happening on the screen. The other thing that's great about it is that uh, he wrote in a block of code that allows the content to read the music. So at various levels, decibel levels of the music or different kinds of instrumentation, in milliseconds it reads these things and responds to it. So if you get, like, say, a drum roll, that you'll see that action on the screen, and it, it makes it feel really intelligent, like it's thinking. And that was just step-by-step step to create this stuff was so fascinating for me. And generally, I think this is like the future of animation. This is where the whole rendering side and all the preparation and stuff can be driven by code, and it can be done pretty easily by reiterating or iterating what you've done before to generate new things. It's constantly evolving. So why not do it all that way? I think that we're working very hard with Josh right now. To He's teaching our developer team to write code in this way. And uh, we think that we're going to be doing a lot of this in the future that's really going to speed up the workflow of the process. And we've demonstrated it now by shooting this code to a 45-foot wide panorama by five feet tall. And it's coming directly from lines of code and generating it right to the screen. And it is absolutely a work of art, and I'm pretty pretty satisfied with how that turned out. And the client was, of course, blown away. Well, with so much data going around now that it only makes sense that we're grabbing data and turning it into animations, even if it's something like, I don't know, the, the amount of CO2 in the air in an office building maybe gives you an idea as to how many people are in the office by their breathing or something. You convert that into raindrops or something. Yes, I love that idea. Now, there's so much available to us now. We've been doing a lot of experimentation with uh, reading people's emotions with various kinds of devices on your head and arms and so forth to understand what people are really thinking as opposed to what they say they're thinking. Because you can read people's emotions pretty accurately and change content based on what that is. So I think the holy grail for us is to have anybody approach a digital screen in a space and have that screen understand who you are, what kind of demographic you are, maybe even what you're wearing or how, what your body shape is like and so forth, and, and use a lot of different information to customize the content on the fly. And if that happens, uh, it's going to be a much better experience for everybody than it currently is because we have to make everything sort of work for all audiences at the same time. And the question then becomes, do you use that content to empathize with the mood the person is in or do you use it to change the mood? Well, we use it to, well, that's a really good question. I think it can happen both both ways, but I think uh, it's in the early phases right now of us figuring this out, but I think what we really want to do is make the most valuable customer experience possible. We know, for instance, that customers don't want to be sold to in the store. They're already loyal customers. They're probably there trying to take care of a problem or get a phone reset or something. And we, we want to entertain them, 
make them feel good about the space and offer them something for being a loyal customer, like a discount or something like that. Yeah, it drives me nuts when I go into a fast food restaurant and they have a digital menu and and they do a complete takeover of the menu to advertise something to me. They spend all that money to get me to stand where I am about to order and then they have the gall to run an ad to me while I'm about to place my order. Yeah, that is amazing. And we developed the store of the future with AT&T and that became, that very thing became an argument between national marketing and the retail marketing group, which is basically the creative group that we felt that generating the customer experience and really get, getting behind the net promoter score was the way to win and not to sell them offers or try to sell, upsell them on some other pr- kinds of products. Because our feeling was that national marketing would want to put every product in the store on every square inch. And our feeling was, no, why don't we turn this into an environmental uh, process where wherever you are in the store, wherever that customer journey is taking you, there's a strategy based on where you are in the store. So when you come in, you have a couple of choices about what direction you're going to go. But that's a place where you can welcome people. You can make them feel good about being there, not assault them with an ad, for instance. And then there's opportunities for them to explore. Or when they're deep in the store, we're kind of talking to them in a very conversational way and try to make the overall experience great. And if they like it and they share it on social media, that NPS score goes up and that's a really important concept, and we basically won that argument, and we've been sort of living behind that ever since. We're working with a couple of other retailers like Target and Home Depot, and all of them sort of see the value of really trying to make customer experience top of uh, top of the line because, after all, the, the customers are there on their own dime, their time, and they're in control. So there's, we're past the time where we can control their output. We can only make them feel good about it. At least we believe that. And the more that we get the screens away from the kind of standard 16 by 9 shape, I think the greater the the understanding of these screens as being things that can be used for creative or ambient use rather than purely selling. Yeah, we've been uh, really hot on the LG Stretch, which is, I think it's 95 inches tall by 21 inches wide. And those are really interesting formats because it changes the paradigm of how people perceive that. Uh, with AT&T, of course, they put a lot of emphasis on the cinema display because we're an entertainment company now, not just a products and devices company. So that emphasizes to the viewer that we're really talking about films and videos and movies and so forth. And that's really the core of the company. And it's quickly becoming that acquisition of Time Warner. If that goes through this year, it's going to completely alter what AT&T is. I'd like to thank our sole sponsor, Mahler Digital Signage, for their patronage. It helps cover the costs and means the podcast can visit DSC to gather some more great interviews. Here's Mahler's Luis Villafane. Hi there, this is Luis from Mahler Digital Signage. You can find us at MahlerDSO.com. We plan, install, and manage digital signage networks for marketing projects, advertising, and retail. We don't sell PCs, we don't sell screens, we don't sell advertising or do physical installations. At Mahler Digital Signage, we offer an all-around consultancy service and project management that will help you find the best hardware and software solutions to deploy from scratch your digital signage network. We adapt to what your company needs, from small to large networks, with a direct support from our engineers within 20 minutes. So at Matter, we manage and design networks. We manage and design digital signage networks. That is it. Check out our website at www.mallardso.com. What led to the final solution that was put in place? Was it the the architecture and the lobby and the place it was being put in, or or was the content driving what was being put in place? 
Well, we had a good idea for what we thought the content should be made up of, and we wanted to respond as closely as possible to what we perceive San Francisco to be, which has rich history with uh, the Pan-American presence and uh, hippiedom and psychedelia, and you can dig deep into this stuff. And Joshua Davis and I worked together to uh, come up with a vocabulary that appears on lots of screens in the store, not just the panorama, but they all kind of carry that same kind of overlay of bright color and a lot of a lot of movement, uh, some beautiful scenic pictures of San Francisco that we took out there and uh, sort of created a whole look for the San Francisco store that's completely its own. And that's what was driving it, not the not the technology at all. In the case of the panorama, of course, we we had a couple of options, three or four options of what we could lay out there. But the panorama seemed the cleanest, the purest. And we just went with that. And uh, that turns out to be uh, 3,000 3, and something pixels wide by 320 pixels tall. So it's not super high resolution, but the LED screens that drive it uh, are super brilliant and it makes it look super, uh, the resolution looks really high. And so that, that was kind of cool. It was a nice surprise to see that because when you're working on a display that's that big, all of your screeners and testing are seen on cinema screens that are no wider than 32 inches and you're talking about something that's 45 feet wide. So it's a weird illusion that things that are big look small and things that are small look big when you're trying to review the work. So we had a, a testing process up at Nanolumens in Norcross, which is close to us, and we could bring content up there and then take a look at it in real life and see what we were getting. And that influenced a lot of how we adjusted the content. And you mentioned that you've changed the content a few times since it's been in place. Uh, is seeing the content in place changing how you are creating content? When we spoke with the people that did the Cosmopolitan Hotel, they talked about you know seeing things in place really altered what they ended up doing in the creation process. I think we got lucky on that one, Michael. Uh, when we came in with the content, it was immediately spectacular, so we hadn't, had, didn't have to make any adjustments. But the, the, the things that we updated were really to inspire people during the holidays, and then we came in with a, some custom content for the Chinese New Year. A lot of these projects, when they launch, they cover the, the budget for the content in the project budget. Is this going to be able to maintain its updates uh, over time? Yes, we have a retainer agreement with AT&T, and we have a special retainer agreement for the San Francisco store. So that's going to allow us to constantly innovate around what we're doing. We're working on some new things there as well. We installed a hologram recently. Uh, we're working on some projections in the escalator area to draw people up to the second floor a little more effectively and so forth. So... Uh, the whole second floor experience is evolving. We're working on an immersive connected bike experience that's going to be a VR type thing. So there's lots of new technologies and techniques that are coming to play on that. And we're constantly challenged to come to the table with new and interesting ideas. So there's, there's never a sameness to this whole thing, but we're going to evolve the thing over time for years to come, I believe. And have you learned anything working on this project about creating content that you didn't know prior to doing it? Well, evolving the AT&T brand has been very interesting. I, I've been working on the account for six years, and we've seen a number of evolutions of what the content looks like. We have something we once called Arcs and Sparks, and then we moved into uh, something that was a little more transparent, uh, gradations and overlays. And currently we're working in an entertainment space that's largely dominated by blue and black, which are associated with uh, elegant after-dark kinds of movie premieres. It's a very kind of high-end look for entertainment. So... It comes along bit by bit, and we evolve it as we go. We're evolving the content on an ongoing basis, and more and more it's 
based on entertainment. So when somebody comes in the store, we want it to scream entertainment, not scream products and devices, because this company is evolving quickly, and it's rapidly going to become a dominant presence in the uh, media marketplace. And we have to answer to that with the store design and with the uh, digital content as well. So that's in our near future. We're working on some of those things right now. And hopefully those will be in play here in the next couple of months. What's the future for screens? Originally, when digital signage came out, it was literally a replacement for posters. And then there was the idea that uh, they would all be monetized and people would be able to sell screen space endlessly for advertising. Uh, There seems to be uh, a bit of a maturation happening now where there's an understanding of, you know, retail experience, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, making use of the space as opposed to just advertising. Where's it? What's the overall play? Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about sharing on social media, maybe using screens as a, a way to get people to share. But w- what's the overall play for, for digital screens, do you think? I like that question a lot. We started by running some episodics on the digital content. One story was called Technista which was about a girl, 22 or so, who's really into fashion, but also into wearable technology and everything that's technology where it meets her look and her friends became a series. And the series was often sponsored in a very transparent way by a series of products that would appear on screen as she uses them in her regular life. And so we would get um, receipts from Samsung and Apple and so forth and and feature their products. And we found that through research groups, focus groups, that people like this, that they like to be entertained and and told a few things that might help them, like give them a little upgrade on their lifestyle here by showing a relatable person. And then we did another one called the Garcias, which was based on a connected family of grandparents, mom and dad, and their three kids and their exploits as well in soccer and so forth and tie it in. Technista was kind of focused on um, premieres like the Oscars and the SAG Awards and so forth, and the Garcias was kind of focused on sports and soccer, which is, a, you know, of course, a natural cultural favorite for the Hispanic population. And what we found out was that we were making money doing that, or AT&T was making money doing that, but we weren't really fulfilling on telling the AT&T brand story more uh, directly. So we abandoned that whole process and instead focused completely on telling the AT&T story, which, of course, is selling freedom. Is, is a big part of it. Take your entertainment with you anywhere you go. Stay connected wherever you are with whoever you want to be connected to. And that's a, a lifestyle play that's very promising for people. And that's kind of what we're focused on now. Can you tell us about any uh, I got you moments in the installation process? Was there anything that kind of happened once you peeled back the paint that made the installation a bit more difficult? <laughs> uh, well, some things are kind of hard to get to, like hanging speakers on the middle of an escalator, for instance, on the roof, can be a little, little, uh, can be a little trying sometimes to make the installations work the way you want to. But fortunately for us, we work very closely with AT and T's CDI team, which is their concept development uh, and innovation team. And those guys are great, and they do this all the time. And so we show up and do the quality assurance and take a look at the content and make sure that everything's playing the way it's supposed to play and looks the way it's supposed to look. And they're responsible for connecting all the wires and make sure that the whole thing is is happening. So that's been really great for us is to be fully integrated as stakeholders in the team when the building is just an empty shell. And then working through the designs and then working through the technology and then as a team coming together in a series of meetings to pull the thing together. 
a very satisfying and rewarding experience for me personally. Certainly a benchmark uh, for you know what's now almost a 40-year career. Can you tell us a little bit about the technology behind the screens? We, we can see what's playing. You've made mention of the fact that it's being generated, but can you maybe explain what is playing things and what is doing the effort behind the scenes? Yeah. So AT&T has a very strong relationship with Dell and a technology provider called Prosys that uh, procures everything that we use. And then we, when we first did the Store of the Future, we had what we called the Explorer Wall, which was 25,000 pixels across, about 40 feet. It appears in all the stores of the future. And the question came up, is there a graphics accelerator or driver that can bring this content to the screen? And the answer was no. So CDI and Process got together, and they talked to NVIDIA, who built a custom machine called the Actinion, which allows uh, six ports of video to come out the back and synchronize them at the same time. So typically on a multi-array screen, let's say we've got nine screens together, and there's four pods of those nine screens, like we have at the Michigan Avenue flagship store, that that would be driven by four Actinions, basically each one driving six screens. And that we found out that's about the maximum, and that's the standard standard input for us with AT&T. In other words, if AT&T asks for it to happen, somebody will build it. And that was about five years ago when we had NVIDIA do that for us, so that was very exciting to see. Is there a message you'd have to those that are creating content for digital screens in general? Not on these large projects, but you know, as you walk around and you see things as you walk through your daily life, do you have a message for anybody creating content? Uh, the more ethereal, eclectic, inspirational, surreal even, uh, the more you can intrigue people and have them actually engage with your product, the better. Because we know that People have short attention spans that you're lucky to get them to look at your screen for eight seconds. So if you can get them past the first eight seconds, maybe you've got a chance to really engage them for a minute. And if you get somebody to watch your screen for two minutes, that is a gigantic brand success. Uh, so we're really going for the kind of content that people love to see. And I think your example of the Cosmopolitan is a good example of that. I thought that you did a really great job on that because it is very intriguing and it makes you want to watch. So it's not all about products and prices. It's really about ideas. And that's a great way to end it. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. You're quite welcome, Michael. Thank you for the time. That's all for this episode of 69 Projects. If you've seen a project in the wild and said to yourself, now that's cool, I'd love to hear about it and maybe featured on an upcoming episode. You can reach me at michael at crowncontent.ca. This podcast is a companion to the 169 podcast, which talks to smart people doing interesting things in this business. It's also tied in with 169, which is the website to read if you really want to learn about the digital signage industry. You'll find that at 16-9.net. This podcast is produced by me in Toronto and is a product of Vertical Media Consulting Group, the massive media empire my buddy Dave Haynes runs out of his house down the highway in Burlington, Ontario. This podcast is sponsored by Mahler Digital Signage. Check them at mahlerdso.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Michael Tutton.